Good evening, everyone. So this mind, we'll just start with a little, a little uh, kind of exploration of the mind. See if you relate to this. I decide to water my garden. As I turn on the hose, I look over at my car and decide it needs washing. As I start toward the garage, I notice mail on the table that I collected from the mailbox earlier. I decide to go through the mail before I wash the car. I lay my keys on the table, put the junk mail in the recycle bin under the table, and notice that it is full. So I decide to put the bills back on the table and take out the recycling first. But then I think, since I'm going to be near the mailbox when I take out the recycling anyway, I may as well pay the bills first. I take my checkbook off the table and see that there is only one check left. <laughs> my extra checks are in the desk in the study, so I go inside the house to my desk where I find the can of Coke I've been drinking. I'm going to look for my checks, but first I need to push the Coke aside so that I don't accidentally knock it over. The Coke is getting warm, and I decide to put it in the fridge to keep it cold. As I head toward the kitchen with the Coke, a vase of flowers on the worktop catches my eye. They need water. I put the Coke on the worktop and discover my reading glasses that I've been searching for all morning. <laughs> I decide to put them back on my desk, but first I'm going to water the flowers. I set the glasses back down on the worktop, fill a container with water, and suddenly spot the TV remote control. Someone left it on the kitchen table. I realize that tonight when we watch TV, I'll be looking for the remote control, but I won't remember that it's on the kitchen table. So I decide to put it back in the front room where it belongs. But first, I'll water the flowers. I pour some water in the flowers, but quite a bit of it spills on the floor. So I set the remote back on the table, get some towels, and wipe up the spill. Then I head down the hall trying to remember what I was planning to do. At the end of the day, the car isn't washed, the bills aren't paid, there's a warm can of Coke sitting on the worktop, the flowers don't have enough water, there is still only one check in my checkbook, I can't find the remote control, I can't find my glasses, and I don't remember what I did with the car keys. Then, when I try to figure out why nothing got done today, I'm really baffled because I know I was busy all day <laughs> and I'm really tired. But I realize this is a serious problem and I'll try to get some help for it. But first, I'll check my email. <laughs> See, can you relate to this, the mind in action? Sometimes it's like this over-caffeinated squirrel jumping from treetop to treetop, looking for this, checking that out. What do I need? What do I want? You know. So as you endeavor to practice meditation, you probably noticed from Tara's instructions this morning, the instructions are pretty simple. Uh, yet, You've also probably noticed during the day that carrying out these instructions isn't so simple. All kinds of these challenging energies uh, arise. And as contemplative artists, you're going to need to work out your relationship with all, these, with all these energies. It's part of the deal. It's part of what you have to do. And I'll 
in a long career of being a contemplative artist. In, in Pali, which is the language spoken in northern India around the time of the Buddha, these, uh, these uh, challenging energies are called nivarana, which literally, literally translate as coverings or that which hinders clear seeing. But commonly they're referred to as the hindrances. I prefer to refer to them as challenging energies, kind of a, more of a neutral, more of a neutral term. And they're usually broken into five categories, um, which are, first category being wanting or lust. It's the wanting mind. Second category, aversion. The non-wanting mind includes energies like anger, fear, guilt, shame, kind of under that umbrella of not wanting. Third category is restlessness and worry. Any of these ring a bell to you so far? Get any of these? And the fourth one, this big one today on the first day of a retreat, sleepiness and dullness. The classic words for those, many of you know them, are sloth and torpor. Sloth and torpor. And then the last section, the last uh, category is doubt. And so here's how these energies are described in the, in the Pali Canon, uh, which is the, the written discourses. Um, the discourses of the Buddha were passed down orally for hundreds of years, and eventually they were written down, and now they form what's called the Pali Canon. And here's a, a few lines uh, from one section. This mind, O oh monks, is luminous but it is covered by adventitious visitors. The uninstructed worldling does not understand this as it really is. Therefore, for her, there is no mental development. This mind, O monks, is luminous, but it is free from adventitious visitors. The instructed noble disciple understands this as it really is. Therefore, for her, there is mental development. In that passage, mental development really is referring to the cultivation of both the heart and the mind. The ability to first, and this is what you're starting this retreat out with, is the, the ability to first gather the forces of the heart-mind into some sense or semblance of stability. And then to utilize that more collected heart-mind uh, to see more clearly into the nature of things, into the components and subcomponents of experience. That's the cultivation of wisdom. And at the same time, cultivating, cultivating a relationship to, to all of creation that's compassionate, that's loving, coming to viscerally understand the nature of nature and our complete interdependence, interrelationship with it. And so we come to cultivate through practice a, what you might call a, a ceaseless, compassionate response to suffering, both your own and the suffering you see around you, in all beings, in all of creation.
the environment, etc. Now another part of this passage points to something that's, that's uh, I find really important. And that's that the mind is luminous. So by its, uh, in its most essential, deepest nature, the mind isn't dark, murky, dull, turbulent. It's bright. It has a, a, a kind of light to it. it it's filled with a shining, um, open, non-conceptual intelligence. And it's also deeply tranquil. This, this, this natural radiant mind has a knowing quality and essentially at its deepest, it is unruffled by anything. It has the capacity to hold everything, the good, the bad, the ugly. But as the Buddha taught, this natural perfected heart-mind is visited. It's visited by these challenging energies. And that's the challenge for you, the spiritual practitioner. But it's important to, to remember, as the definition of nirvana goes, coverings, that these energies that obscure the beauty of your natural radiant heart um, are not inherent or permanent in any way to who you are. They pass through. They cause whatever effects they're going to cause. But they're not part of the internal fabric of your heart-mind. They're just visitors. They're not who you are. I mean, you could frame them as this moment's temporary, temporary weather pattern. Various forms of these natural energies kind of flow through, just like rain, sleet, snow, tsunamis, earthquakes, etc. They kind of swoosh in on you when you're practicing. They challenge your perspective. They challenge your equanimity. The question that that's, uh, I've often reflected on is, okay, these energies arise. They're natural. They happen to everybody who practices. Uh, why? Why do they arise? You know, what's the point? What's, what's going on with them? Why does your unstained, beautiful, perfect, natural mind, radiant mind, get covered over with these energies. And, and one of the main points that I want to make tonight, there's a kind of point here, is that those energies that arise, the restlessness, the doubt, the sleepiness, the wanting, the immersion, etc., that those energies are actually the organism loving itself. They're visitors that seem to cover over this natural, perfect heart, radiant kind of heart-mind, but they're loving visitors. They're kind of mysterious primal energies that arise from the deep subconscious, from the limbic brain. They're powerful forces and they're designed to ensure your survival to bring you comfort and connection. So these visiting energies whose deepest intent is actually one of loving care. They're attempting in their own way to provide you with comfort, to avoid pain, to protect you, 
and to guarantee your survival forever. Okay, now, sure, these energies are misguided. And if you follow them and become enslaved to them, addicted to them, they're definitely going to cause you to suffer in the long run. But I found that over, over the years that holding them in the perspective as lovers and allies, albeit misguided lovers and allies, that's the way to go with this practice. And if you hold these energies, this wanting, this lust, this anger, guilt, shame, worry, doubt, whatever, whatever is arising, if you hold them as the enemy that you have to defeat, it just sets you up for internal strife. It deepens those grooves. It creates more internal welfare, or more internal warfare, more fragmentation, and, it, and in the most pronounced cases, more self-loathing. And as you, as you hear from us in the instructions, in all manner of instructions, that this practice is about self-compassion. It's learning to tenderly, very tenderly, bridge those felt internal separations. This practice is about gentleness. It's self-compassion, not self-warfare. A little later I'll point out in just a little bit of detail how all these energies, known as hindrances, um, how that actually there's a uh, where the love is in those. And I was thinking, well, how do, I, how do I rephrase or reterm this energy? And I was thinking, maybe the term limbic love kind of <laughs> touches the mark. The deepest supportive intention of these energies. So let's, let's try for a few minutes to get a little feel for these five broad categories of these visiting, well-meaning, but challenging energies. Um, when, I, when I was thinking back as I was putting this talk together, think back to some of my early practices and practicing, and sometimes I'm even visited now <laughs> by these, but I, I can remember thinking I had mastered the fine art of having all five categories of these energies up and running at the same time. You know, the wanting, the aversion, the restlessness, the sleepiness, the doubt, the whole enchilada at once. I'd be sitting there trying to meditate and I'd be wanting this or that. You know, I'm at a retreat. Oh, I want the food that the foods that I'm really used to. I want that. Or or boy, I missed the sports section. Or maybe I'd be starting to have some kind of attack of lust for some person in the room. So this mind is reaching out and wanting. And at the same time, I'd be having this aversion. The guy next to me would have his ski jacket on. He'd be zipping it up and down and up and down, you know, keeping me from getting enlightened. And so I'd have, I'd have all this kind of restlessness coming up, but then I'd be dull and foggy and I couldn't think straight. And, and I'd, be, I'd be doubting th what the teachings were and doubting these teachers. Who are these people? And then doubting myself. You know, so it was all like happening at once, a multiple hindrance attack. Maybe some of you could perfect that as you go along. Maybe you already have. So despite their frequent visitation, these energies are really quite workable. Your basic mindfulness practice supports 
the capacity, your capacity to be with them really skillfully. I mean, the, the moment that you notice what's going on, you know, you become awake to the arising of a particular energy. Okay, that moment's a, a very cool moment. You know, whatever it is, the wanting, the aversion, etc. Because you, at that moment, you've just, in that moment, you have a different relationship to that energy. It's a qualitatively different energy. When you're mindful of what's going on, when it's going on, you're not as lost in it. You're not as submerged in it. You're not as identified. There's this kind of healthy detachment. You're there fully feeling it, but you're not tumbled over in it. And it, so this moment of recognition brings a little spaciousness into the picture. It's a, it's a healthier new relationship to whatever that phenomena is that's, that's arising. And as you develop some continuity of mindfulness over time in your practice, the elements of a concentrated mind, heart, mind, or samadhi, naturally relax these energies. And in samadhi, and that's what you're practicing to do today, you're kind of gathering your, your energy on, on one particular object. We're encouraging you to, to do that, to kind of gather uh, gather your forces of heart-mind together. And classically, uh, concentration or samadhi has these five elements, and each of these elements helps kind of counteract or soothe or cool one of these challenging energies. And so the first element in samadhi is what's called vitaka. It's really just the, the aiming and the connecting of the mind. For example, let's, let's use sound. Say sound's your object of meditation. All right? Connect with that sound. All right, I'll ring it again. Connect with it when I ring it. In that moment, um, sleepiness is gone. You're connected. You're hooked in there. So this, this first aiming and connecting with your object of meditation, it, it really counteracts some of the sleepiness. It's a, it's a wakeful, bright kind of energy, this vitaka. Now, of course, today you've experienced sleep, sleep as, you know, sleepiness, a lot of you. And on, on the one level, we're all chronically underslept. That's just the way we roll in this culture. We get all underslept and then we ca caffeinate ourselves to get by. And then on, on another level, you all have different biorhythms. Some are early morning people, some are evening people, etc. But a more interesting type of sleepiness is, uh, is what we call sinking mind. It's where there's pretty good steadiness of mind, but the energy isn't up to speed. It's like there's brownout conditions, you know? You're kind of mindful, but the lights have kind of dimmed way down. Sinking mind. Uh, from up here at the beginning of a retreat, or especially after lunch, that's a good time to peek and look out there. It's like this sea of bobbleheads. You know, it's kind of like, you know, all over the place. 
Of course, truth be told, if you looked up here, you might see some of the same activity. And sometimes that, that whiplash jerk will kind of restart your, your system. And of course, sometimes not. You just kind of go back into the fog. You know. So at these times, that vitaka, that connection, you know, it isn't very strong. It's not juiced enough. The, the interest isn't there. The energy's not there. The balance is some, somehow off a little bit between the calming energies, you've got a lot of those, and the energetic factors, not enough of those. Sometimes chronic sleepiness in meditation is a result of, a, just frankly, a life out of balance. Or maybe there's some resistance that, uh, to a difficult emotion that needs to be felt through, some feelings of loneliness that are there being repressed a little bit, or sorrow, emptiness, you know, loss of control, whatever it might be. And another way to look at this uh, sloth and torpor, sleepiness, is just not being alive to what's happening right now. Uh, when we're trying to sit here, it, just, it, it manifests as sleepiness. In life, it can, out in life, it can be kind of just waiting for life to begin, waiting for the next jolt of stimulus. And some of you are experienced junkies. I don't know who you are, but I know you're out there. And as you learn to meditate, it takes time to get acclimated to the subtleties of experience and not just doze off between one intense stimulation and another. So that's the first element of how you know, the, the factors of concentration help soothe, and in this case, sleepiness, that connecting. The second aspect of samadhi or gathering the mind is the sustaining of that connection. It's called vichara. And the sustaining capacity, that actually counteracts doubt. So just, I'm going let, let to it, let it ring for a while here and just sustain your attention on the ring till you can't hear it anymore. When your attention is sustained on your object, there's no opportunity during that interested connection for confusion or uncertainty to take hold and cloud the mind. It's just, there's just no room in there. But doubt, doubts, doubts may be the most insidious of these energies, of these challenging energies, because it's often so logical. And it's so logical because skillful doubt is an aspect of wisdom. I mean, you don't want to live your life as some goober who believes everything you hear. That's, that's just not going to work out very well. But on the other hand, running off on these long internal narrations, thought streams, about, you know, that, that are it's just doubt will paralyze your practice. 
If you're being barraged by thoughts of, gee, I'm wasting time, these teachings are bogus, these teachers are clueless, or, gee, this may work for some people, but, but not for me, I'm too dense. You know, you get the feeling, I mean, the plug just gets pulled. You know, the energy just drains away. Story. A nun came to the abbess complaining that doubt was her primary challenge on the Buddhist path. She had doubt about the path itself, about the teachings, and about the teachers, and most importantly, about her own ability to succeed in, in the Buddhist practice. Your problem, said the abbess, is that you don't doubt enough. If you are going to the trouble of doubting, then continue your doubting, but do it more thoroughly. Please also doubt your doubt. You don't have to believe that stuff that flies through. Doubt your doubt. Don't take it as some truth of the universe. The third element of a gathering mind, samadhi, is called piti. Uh, and that's, uh, the, the translation for that is rapture and joy. When your mind gets concentrated, even for a short while, there's the arising of some pleasant sensations that, that, are, that naturally occur. And they can be described as rapture and joy. And those of you that have been practicing for a while, you know that that's what happens. Otherwise, you wouldn't be back here. <laughs> so, um, and, and when they are present, when that rapture and joy is in the mind and in the heart, you, you temporarily cannot find any hatred. You know, there's no fear, there's no guilt, there's no shame, there's just no aversion. And then when the fourth element of samadhi which is called sukha, arrives. Um, it's some more goodies. It's a contented sweetness. I actually have this, my, my dog, and, and I waited for a while before I named her. I named her sukha because she does have this kind of contented sweet, sweetness. And so when this contented sweetness arises in the mind, your thinking settles down. You'll notice at that point you're contented. There's no obsessive planning. There's no agitation. There's no restlessness or worry. So that's another one of those categories that gets temporarily soothed by just this basic mindfulness practice that we're learning, learning how to stabilize the heart-mind. So when this feeling of sukha is there, this contentedness, it's like there's this just overall okayness. The mind's content. You actually get delighted in this simple experience. You're sitting here, the ambient sounds, and you know, maybe it used to bother you before there was some aversion, but now it's like, oh, this is a beautiful symphony. Sniffles, rustling, people <laughs> coming and going. It's all like just delightful. You know, the whole thing takes on that tenor. And so you practice and you practice more and then the mind even settles deeper into what's known, the fifth aspect is what's known as ikagata, which is the unification of the mind. 
And that has the capacity to um, soothe desire. When you have this kind of focused one-pointedness with experience, what happens is you don't need or want anything. Nothing is lacking. There's no feeling of deficiency. There's nothing you need to get. Desire's absent, kaput. Ekagata is synonymous with equanimity. You could say that you move from this sweet contentedness of sukha into this kind of coolness of equanimity. So at this point, you know, there's this kind of unification of the mind and all these quote-unquote hindrance energies or challenging energies are relaxed temporarily. So as you work your meditation over time, these, in, from time to time, these energies get relaxed. But when they're up, they're up. So I want to talk about some helpful ways of working with them, really practical ways to deal with these energies when, when, they're, when they're really up for you. I mean, how do you deal with, how do you work with these strong lust, fear, sleepiness, worry, whatever, doubt? There's some general methods that, that many of us have found helpful over the years. And uh, one acronym that, that you might have heard, RAIN, R-A-I-N. How many of you are familiar with that acronym? Good, the word's getting out. Not, not everyone, but I'll, I'll run through it again. The R, first you, you have to recognize what's going on or you're just identified with it and you're reacting to it and things are going on and you most likely end up maybe feeling a little miserable. But there's another R that you could kind of feel that's involved there. There's a recognition and then there's the receiving, the, the receptiveness of, at that first recognition. Um, and you also can begin, if you train yourself to, at that moment, to recognize the supportive deep energy that is involved in pushing this challenging energy to the surface. So you notice, oh, this is fear, feeling some fear. So that's the recognition, kind of. And if you can receive that fear with the softening limbic love perspective, that fear is really trying to protect you from danger. Sure, it may be misguided, but it's trying to protect you. And say wanting or lust is up for you. The softening perspective on that is that your organism is trying to bring you what's needed for comfort or for connection or to keep the gene pool going. You know, That's the intention in there. Again, it can be misguided. And if you follow it, it'll make your life a mess, you know, if you let it rule your life. And then if there's restlessness and worry, the softening perspective is that your organism is trying to bring you again, or trying to line things up or plan for you uh, all the things that are necessary for survival survival forever. Yeah. 
And if sloth and torpor is present, I've already touched on this a little bit, it may be just that you're tired and you need to go to sleep. And on a deeper level, it may be that there's something really kind of challenging, an emotion, an uncomfortable emotion that needs to be felt through in your, in your system, your organism, slightly misguided, saying, oh, I don't want you to feel uncomfortable, sweetie. I just don't want you to feel this, so we're just going to dim the lights. And if doubt has arisen in the limbic love context, it doesn't want you to be fooled by anything. It doesn't want you to be taken for a ride. So it's better to like paralyze the whole system than to make a wrong move. Again, it's kind of misguided, but you see where the intention is, you know, I'm trying to take care of you. So the R of, of rain, recognize and receive, and then there's the A, the accepting, the allowing of, of whatever is happening. So we're not grasping or pushing away. Just allowing the phenomena to play out. Today's weather. It wasn't there a while ago. It's here now. And at some point, it won't be here. So we just kind of watch this arc. This is the way nature works. It's a radical non-interference with the, with the natural flow of the mind-body experience. So A, you know, it's allowing. It's a non-resistance to experience. Then the I, R-A-I, becoming intimate or investigating this phenomena that is up. Turn toward it. It takes some courage. Explore it. Look into the phenomena. Watch it grow. Watch it flower. Watch it pass away without pushing or pulling. We really learn when we, when we hang with an experience like that and become intimate with it, we really start to understand on a visceral level about impermanence. You know? And it's not you. It's just stuff happening, coming into being and then disappearing. And finally, the end, the non-identification or non-ownership, you could say. It's, it's the wisdom understanding that everything, that there's, uh, everything is operating on it with this selfless nature. There's a selfless aspect to creation. And then an aspect of being human is having this wanting, this lust, the, this aversion, this worry, whatever it is. And that these challenging energies are trying to protect and comfort you. And that they are just passing phenomena. They're rolling on. They're not yours. They're not who you are. And so, uh, the razor's edge in this practice is can you experience fully, completely embody your experience, be fully there, but not identified in it, not lost in it. There's your razor's edge. A couple of subtle changes in perspective have been helpful to me over the years in being, being with these energies. And one is the process of withdrawing energy from the object and then placing the energy on, on my own experience. 
Here's what I mean, an example. It's late at night. I want to eat. I know that's not healthy. I find myself opening the refrigerator door. Anybody ever have that experience? You know, we know it's not healthy, but we do it. Okay. But suddenly I'm awake to, what, to what's, what's going on. I'm awake. I'm mindful. Now there's a choice. Do I directly try to experience the sensations going on in my body, the emotional state or the emotional constellation? Do I try to experience that directly, see it through its impermanent cycle, or do I eat? Those are my choices. So if I turn into my experience in those moments, sometimes I'll, I'll find or be able to detect a, a, just a low level of anxiety. Okay? I can be with anxiety. I can feel it in the body. It's not going to kill me. It comes, it goes. If I look around a little more, I might feel maybe a little loneliness. You know, they don't call it comfort food for no reason. And maybe there's a little sadness in there. But I can be with these. I can turn my attention there and feel it. It's just emotions coming and going. So as you go through these cycles over and over, over time you develop some confidence to, that you're able to be with these, with these energies that come and go. You know? So... So you can withdraw from the object. In that case, I was talking about food. I with, withdrew the attention from the object and onto myself. And I had a very direct, you know, a, a, a primary experience. And try this. I encourage you to try this. When you have, when you're feeling, you know, angry at somebody or you have lust in your heart towards somebody, like Jimmy Carter. Anybody remember when Jimmy Carter had this great thing? Well, when I think back on it, he was kind of like, doing some dharma there. It was like he kind of withdrew his attention from whatever he was lusting on. And he said, I have lust in my heart. You know, oh, what's that like, Jimmy? You know, so um, it's a little dharma exploration. So, so let's, let's try a little reflection. Let's see if we can work up some lust in the heart or some wanting. So... Um, for those of you that are completely enlightened, that will be impossible. <laughs> but the rest of you might be able to find something. So just settle into a comfortable position. Close your eyes. And now, just see if you can pick out something that you want. It can be food, object, new car, new computer, person, make it as juicy as, as you want, okay? And now really see the details of that object. You know, really allow your heart, mind to go out there and kind of feel it through in every way. Taste it. Smell it. You know, touch it in your mind. Spend some moments now just indulging in the wanting. I 
really want this. Keeping your attention just fully on the objects for just a few moments more. Now, just withdraw your attention from the object to that wanting feeling inside you. What do you feel in your body? Where in your body do you feel it? Maybe you're feeling the, this arc of wanting very directly. Notice, does it change? Stay with those sensations in the body. Feel them directly, this wanting. Not attending to the object at all. Having the attention completely withdrawn from the object. Just having a simple, unadulterated, internal wanting experience. Okay, maybe notice if it's changed. Did it change at all? Spending a little time with it, not pushing at it, just noticing it. So that's withdrawing from the object. Hope you got a little sense of that process. But I want you to stay in reflection, stay inside. Because another strategy that can be useful is what you might call the uh, utilization of the sensibility of spaciousness. And I'll just walk you through that this for a minute or two. Is when we bring in the this 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 um, spacious awareness. It's like a broader camera angle. So we're feeling, in addition to the wanting, we're kind of experiencing the awareness, the spacious awareness that's holding the wanting, where the desire might be churning. So once again, see if you can find something that you want, just for a few minutes. I don't want you to get addicted to this, whatever it is, but I just want you to feel it again. Go back there. Crank it up. Taste it. See it. It's also yummy. You want it. Now, okay, so there's wanting going on with this with this object, and before we kind of then turned it into ourselves. But what if we just then explored the awareness that holds this wanting? We're still aware that this wanting is happening, and we can, we can of course, feel it in our body. You know, feel free to feel it in your body. But also notice this broader, spacious awareness that holds it. 
It's a very steady sense in this broad kind of spacious awareness. It can really hold anything. So also within this broad spacious awareness that is surrounding you, this whole room that contains all these other people, all having their little wanting event happening. This spacious awareness is infinite. It holds this building, this planet, all these lives on this planet happening right now, whole solar systems beyond being born and dying. And yes, there's still desire. But we also can rest in the spaciousness of the awareness that holds it all. So you can open your eyes. So just a couple ways to play with these, play with these energies. I, I like to also mention that one, maybe my favorite articulation of how to work with these energies is by the 12th century Korean Zen master, Shinul. And his phrase was tracing back the radiance. That's what he taught his students to do. And he'd say, hey, it doesn't matter what's up for you. You can have rage, hatred, lust, whatever. That's fine. Let's just start where you are. Start where you are. It's like Pema Chodron's thing. Start where you are. Whatever it is, allow it to be. Feel the sensations. It's just like our rain uh, articulation. Embrace them kindly, not interfering. But whatever you start with, if you're there patiently and kind of allowingly, it's going to change because everything in nature changes. It may intensify for a while, but it will eventually dissolve under a patient equanimity. Then it kind of may dip into the next configuration of heart, mind, body, whatever that may be. And so Chanel would say, well, just stay with that. And so stay with that, applying the same kindly patience. And you do that with the next set of emotions, sensations, and the next. And he maintained, and he taught his students, that if you can stay with that same patient acceptance to whatever's happening, that eventually the clouds will completely lift. And it will reveal this radiant, this clear, luminous, radiant heart-mind. That clear, luminous heart-mind that's always been there. And you can, you can, you're actually learning to do this with whatever's up for you. One of my main hindrances, my hindrance du jour, often is planning. Anybody else have planning as kind of a big one? Anybody do any planning today? I mean, yeah. Remember, that's, that, that planning is the uh, organism uh, protecting, you know, it's the desire of the organism to like get everything in order and 
help us live forever. That's what planning does. So sometimes if it's really insistent, you know, I'll look at it. Okay, what's this about? You know, this planning is just so insistent, so powerful. And then I'll find, again, I'll find a little anxiety. So if I can be with that, feel it in the body, here and there, stomach, chest, wherever it manifests, be with it kindly. And then it might morph into, oh, that's, that's really a little more than anxiety. There's some fear in there. All right, can I be with that fear? You know, stay with it patiently, watch it, watch it. And then it can, might kind of open up into, you know, this is feeling pretty primal. It's like this desire for existence or for survival is driving this planning. I see it, I feel it. Can I be with that? This desire for existence. So I'm kind of, can I be with that? Can I be with that? And if I'm with it long enough, that dissolves out. And when that dissolves out, then there's nothing but this kind of radiant, luminous heart-mind tinged with this loving-kindness for myself and everything else. Like tracing back the radiance, little by little. And sometimes, you get trained in this, the clouds can lift right away. And in some days, uh, these coverings are just too thick. The weather pattern is just too thick to penetrate. But that's just the way it is that day. You work as far as you can, and tomorrow's another day. Ajahn Chah, the legendary Thai master, gives his flavor of tracing back the radiance. He, he muses here in this, uh, on the nature of suffering. He says there are two kinds of suffering. The suffering that leads to more suffering, and the suffering which leads to the end of suffering. The first is the pain of grasping after fleeting pleasures and aversion for the unpleasant, the continued struggle of most people day after day. And he goes on. The second is the suffering which comes when you allow yourself to feel fully the constant change of experience. Pleasure, pain, joy, anger. Feeling that without fear or withdrawal the suffering of our experience leads to inner fearlessness and peace. The suffering of our experience leads to inner fearlessness and peace. And I fully believe that. You know, you're learning little by little to extend what your capacity is, both in physical sensations and emotional sensations. And those of you that have practiced for a while will, can reflect back and say, well, you know, I, I used to get really stuck when such and such would happen. I just couldn't handle it. It was just, whoa. But now I'm pretty okay with that. I can, I can, I can do that. But that boundary of what we can handle extends and extends and extends. And I fully believe that at some point there isn't any physical sensation, there isn't any mental uprising that can't be handled, that is beyond your capacity. That's what you're entering into with this practice. 
So tonight I offered you a brief look at some of the challenging energies that you are building a relationship with, really, over time in your contemplative practice. And I hope I drove home the, the point about that perspective that, that there can be a softer self-compassionate appreciation for the deepest intention of these energies, the limbic love of the organism for itself, that it's, we don't have to get into warfare with these energies. We can appreciate them. Thank you very much. I appreciate what, you, what you're trying to do for me. And, you know, I know a, a way that maybe has a little more wisdom in it. But literally, it's creation loving itself. And yes, we don't want to follow them. They will create havoc in our life. And then we talked about rain. We went over that again. Recognize, allow, investigate with some intimacy, non-identification. And I suggested to you the conscious act of um, removing your attention from the object of these energies when they're up. That person sniffling or zipping and unzipping their jacket. Just bring it in. Experience directly what aversion is or whatever it might be. And then I suggested the, the consciousness of the conscious act of perceiving the vast spaciousness around these energies when they're up and, are, and they're up and they're active. You know, sure, at times they may overwhelm us completely and fill up the whole phenomenological field. But if you can sense that, oh, there is a spacious awareness that's holding all this, and that's a, 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 a steady spacious awareness that I can actually count on to hold all of this, to hold everything. A spacious awareness that's so vast, so steady, so receptive, it literally can allow, receive, and hold any sensation, emotion, or thought that comes into being. Allowing them to do their thing, allowing them to then relax out. And I also wanted to highlight the, the Buddha's articulation of this illumined heart-mind, this radiant heart-mind. It's your birthright. It's there in all of you. Sure, it gets covered over a lot. But its deepest essential character, you know, you, you all have access to this radiant heart-mind. It's bright. It has this knowing quality. It has a deep tranquility. It's unruffled by anything. And as you learn to trace back the radiance to your radiant, perfected heart-mind, you do it over and over. This confidence and this capacity to handle anything builds and builds. And ultimately, you really come to see that you're already there. This radiance really is there all the time. 
So this practice you've embarked on, it's really a variety of ways to remind yourself of this radiance and to help you navigate your way back home. It's that simple. And I want to close with just a few words, uh, some of my favorite words from Walt Whitman that speaks to this radiance. It's from uh, Song of the Open Road. Pausing, searching, receiving, contemplating gently, but with undeniable will, divesting myself of the holds that would hold me, I inhale great drafts of space. The east and the west are mine. The north and the south are mine. I am larger, better than I thought. I did not know I held so much goodness. So let's just sit for just a moment. I inhale great drafts of space. The east and the west are mine. The north and the south are mine. I am larger, better than I thought. I did not know I held so much goodness. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.